Dennis Sarfate making his first appearance. What will you do to defend the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Welcome to the Green Dragon Tavern, where we talk a little treason. I'm Zach Lautenschlager. And I'm Dennis Sarfate. Joining us today is Mr. David Bonson, a friend of the show, and uh, someone we're pleased to have back. David, thanks for jumping on. Well, thanks for having me. So, David, you uh, are releasing a book uh, right now, I believe, correct? Uh, I've been excited to see. It's called Full Time, um, and uh, obviously I have not read it yet. Look forward to doing so, but if I understand the premise, it's about the Puritan work ethic. Do I have that right? Yeah, I do believe that um, the Puritans basically extracted and properly exegeted scripture to apply themselves what the book's about. But I don't think even the Puritans made it up. You know, they were more doing faithful application of what the book's about, which is the Genesis 1 message, the creational foundation of work. Well, indeed, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's about the Bible, and we were just talking about the uh, the problems with the idea that you're going to work to a certain age, say 65, and then you're going to retire, and you're just going to do nothing for the remaining, what, hopefully 20, 30 years of your life, and how much that has failed in the West, um, how much it causes problems. Um, and I, obviously, that's only one part to it. You also have on the younger side the idea of putting in absolutely as little as possible in order to get a paycheck, um, and that's called work-life balance, right? Um, mm-hmm. What What is your take on uh, the uh, the epidemic perspective that uh, that work is bad? Why well, I might suggest that those two things are not as separate as they may seem. That connected. Um, to the way that young people view work is the message that older people have portrayed. And what I mean by it is this. Why did we say the age 65? What was the reason for suggesting that at 65, some people want to leave the workforce and and go begin a 20 or 30 year vacation? Um, Presumably, 65 is where folks might have the financial wherewithal to do so. But what if somebody has the financial wherewithal to do so at 35? I mean, 65 is where they price Social Security at. 65 is generally where people kind of roughly run 401k fundings to. So that's the amount of time it may take for someone to accumulate. But if you start off your working career with an understanding that the reason you're doing it is to not have to do it anymore, then 65 becomes a very arbitrary marker and people start reaching for 55 or 51 Mm -hmm. or 47. Mm -hmm. Um, There are more now than there used to be because of tech IPOs and other various things. There are 27-year-olds that, as a matter of a pro forma of cash flow, have enough money to live the rest of their life. Should they exit the uh, life of of, um, labor and productivity? and activity for 70 years, for 60 years. But see, that to me is the message that we have really embedded. Some of it is implicit, but because we got to a point where post-World War II, uh, we began living longer, first 10 years longer than 20. So added mortality, that's a good thing. Uh, um, and And then we had the prosperity to do so. We had enough economic growth that people were able to accumulate money 
And so my argument in chapter seven of the new book is that Madison Avenue ran with this. They marketed a vision of leisure and recreation. And the baby boomers of the first generation that have really been able to, to fully do it to, to envision a life of a 25-year vacation and to go about doing so. And so my argument is that there are three victims in this mentality, and they're severe. The first is the retiree themselves. I think they're removed from purpose. They're removed from meaning and, and a lot of the value they contribute. It can be debilitating to somebody who is used to mattering in their daily contributions to society, who is all of a sudden pulled from a, a, a vantage point of, of relevance mm -hmm. and, and activity. No matter how much they love golf or how much they love walking on the beach with their wife or all the other things you see in a commercial, um, it does not fill their cup spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, et cetera. But then the other victim is all of us that are now deprived of the expertise and experience of people that have been in the workforce with subject matter expertise for 20, 30, 40 years. There, there's 26-year-olds that have stuff to say I want to hear, but candidly, I'm, uh, I'm going to turn 50 this year. I'm more interested in what 66-year-olds have to say about a lot of things. I want people with a little um, uh, time in, in, and experience in some of these matters. And then finally, the, the third victim is the young people entering the workforce that I talked about before, who are sort of told you're going to do something and the reason is so that you don't have to do it anymore. Then that adds to a feeling of, the, the young people are too smart. They immediately realize, so this doesn't really matter. Yeah. I'm doing it to check the boxes to kind of accumulate some stock options or 401k or a pension. But really, the point is to get out. So what is the meaning of it all? Well, as a believer, I have a worldview mm -hmm. that tells me what the meaning of it all is. And my worldview does not tell me that the work is something I do so I can accumulate some funds to then stop working. Mm -hmm. My worldview tells me the work does matter, that there is intrinsic meaning, and that it starts with the way God himself views the work and the worker. Yeah, you know, I have two things on this. One, I see the big corporations that actually push people out. I have a friend at work that's going through this right now. He's getting to that age where he's mid-50s and his company is already looking to find a way to get him gone, right? And so you have these younger, we can pay someone younger a lot less um, going on. I was fortunate to play baseball. I retired after 21 years. I was 41 when I retired from baseball. I, I've always said, I don't know how guys can just quit work and not do anything and sit at home. And I think that's why if you look at just athletes themselves, marriages are broken from, from that. These guys retire and then they're at home and they don't have a, a purpose. There's no relevance to why they're around. And, and then strife comes between their wife, between, you know, the family style at home. And we are meant to work. Adam was in the garden working, you know, and I believe that all men want that purpose. No one wants a handout. Well, I guess some people do want a handout, but in the end, at the end of the day, I think most men would want to earn a living. And when you just go to a certain age and you're like, yep, I'm going to get to this and I'm done. I mean, I feel after 21 years of playing, I feel like I work harder now with homeschooling and, you know, helping my wife around with stuff and, and, you know, lobbying for the end of abortion. It's like, man, my days are a lot harder and longer than they ever were. Um, 
Are you, and, and, and when and when your kids are out of the home and uh, there's something else you'll be mm -hmm. doing and when and, and when the one particular lobbying activity um, or civic engagement wraps up, there's another one. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's sort of the point is that there is time for rest. Mm -hmm. And and I believe that a real blessing in the creation account is the fact that God kind of gave us the formula. Mm -hmm. You know, he modeled it. He said, I work for six days. I rest on the seventh. And and then, of course, in Exodus 20, he attached this normative about a Sabbath rest to the creation account. I didn't do that. That's not clever hermeneutics on my part. If, if somebody did sort of extract that, it would seem to me still to be pretty good exegesis. Mm -hmm. But they don't even have to. It was done for them in Exodus 20 that the basis of this day of rest so we talk about work-life balance. This is chapter nine of my book. Work-life balance is an atrocity. What are you trying to do balancing one of the most important things in your life with your life? How do you, do you, how many of us want to say that to our wives? Excuse me, I need to kind of balance you in here. I got the rest <laughs> of my life to think about. That'll go over that, well. But, but, but the, it, it's a dualist attitude. And it's completely devoid of any comprehension of the way God views these things. Uh, what is biblical is a work-rest paradigm. And, and so to the extent that we need um, to take advantage of the fact that the Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath, uh, I think people need to recharge the batteries. But I just sort of view the formulas about six on, one off. <laughs> Call me funny. <laughs> you know, I, I think that a big part of this you've already touched on, David. We, we've told people now for a long time that in order to really get along in life, you're going to have to pick doing something for the majority of it that you kind of hate. You're, you're just not going to like it. It's not that work is hard. It's not that, you, you know, there's toil. Sure, nobody loves that. That's going to be in any job. It's more than that. It's that the job itself is something that is soulless, lifeless, and you're really just kind of, kind of hate it. And you got to suck it up and just do it anyway, because, you know, suck it up for 30 years and then you can retire and spend the, the last 30 yeah. of your years doing, you know, what you've earned, which is nothing. Um, and it, it's insipid. It sucks. Um, it, it's false. I, I was blessed to grow up in an agricultural setting where it's very different. That's one place in America where, that's not the reality. You decide to do agriculture because you like the, the, like the lifestyle. I was born on a 4,000-acre ranch, and there, there's something there. My great-grandma had homesteaded, you know, so there's, there's some meaning and some purpose. Now, I didn't have to go into agriculture. I, I got plenty of it until I, I was grown and learned that I had skills in other places, but I did learn in that growing up there that life is all mixed up together. You're going to be out, take your rifle, you go out because you're going to be doing some work and then you can stop and do whatever you, you know, shoot or go hunting or whatever, or, you know, I'm going to take my dirt bike today or whatever it may be. And that's in the outside. It, it, it works the same from my perspective. I moved to a place where there's lots of mountain activities because I love that. Um, and there are many days when I'm working from the ski lodge while my kids are out making laps. Um, work is still getting done. In fact, it needs to get done. Um, and maybe I go take a lap at lunch or whatever it may be. Those are just some examples of, of looking at it going, okay, first of all, work and play are not, th these, these two things do not just exist in separate worlds. We live in the same world where they're completely available. Are you creative enough to, to do this? 
And as employers, should we be in creative to do that? Probably. There are some definitely some ways we can do that. And that doesn't even get into the fact that I love what I do. I, I chose to do what I do because I love it. I enjoy it. I don't want to stop. Um, I hope I have the opportunity to become, to, to do this in, in one way or another until God puts me in the ground. Uh, I think that's just, you know, there's consequences too, to this, right? Like if you think about it, like David, you fly a lot. I fly a lot. Zach, you fly a lot. I don't want these senior pilots to all of a sudden say, you know, (laughs) I reached this age, I'm done. And now we have a bunch of rookie pilots, which is happening. The, which has happened, the inclusion and, and equity and, you know, you have female, and I, you know, nothing against female pilots. I had one the other day that landed the plane like it was on a sack of pillows. It was amazing. But what I'm saying is you don't want all of a sudden these people right out of flight school running these, these companies and all of these old veteran type pilots who have been through a lot and done a lot of flight time gone. I just, there's consequences to people just dropping out because they've reached an age and you think that, I think big companies just say, you know what, you're not relevant to the company anymore. We can't use you as much. You're older. You, you, you know, you might walk slower through the airport. Like experience means a lot in a lot of different occupations. And man, it's, it's, I think it's a sad thing to push people out when they still have so much to give. You're, it's just really, it's not fair to to certain people, but, um, that's the society we live in. I think we should we could be fair to point out that there are other analogies that could serve as a counterfactual if we're if we don't get in front of it. In other words, I think it, some of the examples I'm using about um, a business veteran having more experience, the uh, seasoning that a, a more uh, experienced pilot would have. But one could easily say, "Come on, are you saying you want a 70 year old?" Um, as a cop out on the street chasing down bad guys or do or even for that matter, yourself as a a pro athlete, you know, uh, candidly, I enjoyed watching the 30 year old Michael Jordan more than the 44 year old, (laughs) you know, okay, let's let's uh, recognize that there are those certain elements, uh, various age and stage and physical or mental limitations. Mm -hmm. I'm not particularly fond of, let's say, 80 year olds running for president, for example. Yeah, just hypothetically. You and me both. Yeah. But but um, but here's the thing. Why is it binary? Why? What about a 66 year old who becomes more of a mentor, Mm -hmm. has a different role, uh, participates more in management or participates more in a different context? I mean, obviously, every field, every industry, every job is going to have a different manifestation of what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But that's not what we've done. What we've said is golden watch exit hit the golf course, and by the way, hit the yep. bar. Yeah. I mean, they kind of start living again the way they did when they were 20. You know, some of these retirement villages, if you read the analysis it's of what's crazy. going on there, it's very hedonistic. It's just, it's utterly depressing. You, you had and mentioned so, something about the drinking part. Can you hit on that, you know, about Alcoholics Anonymous and who's actually attending these, these uh, age groups? Yeah, I mean, this is very verifiable data um, outside of AA, because obviously within AA, the anonymity is going to be more anecdotal, although there's strong support for the anecdotal side there. But statistically, the uh, people going into uh, rehabs are, uh, besides the very, very young demographic who's almost always going in for, for you know, college age drug abuse, mm-hmm. it's, it's middle it's 60, 65 year old men. Hmm. that um, were removed from a point of usefulness. Mm -hmm. And perhaps they were 
heavy drinkers before, and then it just kind of reached a, a, an apex in that point of retirement, or maybe they weren't even heavy drinkers before and they became such, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's far less socially destructive, the analogy I'm about to give, but even myself in the field of wealth management, we see people who are clients of ours, we manage their money for years and they were working and we very rarely heard from them and we would do reviews and sit and meet, but they were busy with their careers and then they retire and they start watching CNBC all day and calling us six times a day and so forth. You know, there, there's a sense of idleness that is just as destructive for a 60 year old as it is for a kid, a teenager, a young adult. But why should we be shocked that so many 28 year olds have removed themselves from useful activity, prime working age men, Right now, we basically have something between 82 and 85% of them that are working or looking for work. That means 15 to 18% have removed themselves from the workforce. Unemployment's only 3%. So 3% are not finding a job, 15% are not looking for a job. And that's in prime working age men, not under 25, not over 50. How in the world is this happening? It's the polar opposite of the Great Depression when you had virtually everybody looking for a job, but but a lot of people about the same percentage not able to find one. I just think that we have taken both, then maybe we'll pivot to the church, outside the church in terms of secular culture and to another extent within the church. We've taken a spirit about work and unfortunately people believed it. We, we, we acted like work was a necessary evil, and now we're dealing with the consequences of that mentality. Do you think, COVID, I mean, we, we look back to COVID and, and what was the biggest push by the government to get people to go along? We'll send you money. We'll send you checks. And then people started to, I mean, the workforce, good. now you could even get someone to come tile your floor if you wanted to pay him top dollar. He was like, yeah, I'm not working now. I'm collecting from the government. Do you see that as being an issue too, that some people got a taste of what free living is and then they just kind of go without and they're like yeah we'll just see how it is or like how did we get to this point well i think covid was more a um an exacerbation of a problem that already existed it was not creating a new problem in the sense of that couldn't have ever worked in a prior generation Mm -hmm. you would never have gotten that many people to remove themselves from the workforce even if the government was producing some of those temporary payments uh, because the cultural expectation was that one would work. And there was a shame in not working. My first book, Crisis of Responsibility, I talked about this regarding the financial crisis. We had house values go down before, Mm -hmm. but you just didn't have people stop making the payment or giving the keys back to the bank unless they were in those dire emergencies which is why we have foreclosure laws and bankruptcy laws and so forth. But you didn't have people doing it voluntarily, strategic defaults. Mm-hmm. You want to go admit to your friends you couldn't make your house payment? What kind of man are you? It became something to brag about during the financial crisis. We were proud of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think you're describing in the COVID moment. And so all of this comes, in my opinion, out of the, the impact of postmodernity the um, the total degradation of a cultural, moral expectation. And work to me is ground zero because it is the pre-fall creational expectation 
for what God made us for, made as a blessing to us, that once we've adopted this sort of negative mentality about work, uh, it's no surprise that so many people took advantage of the COVID moment to say, I, I, I could get used to laying around in my pajamas watching Netflix all day. It's a, it's a meaningless existence that needs to stop. Mm -hmm. Man, I'm looking forward to full time. I can't wait to read it. Indeed. I'm uh, getting my I, copy today. <laughs> good. So you were, you were one of the, the, the uh, loyal folks who pre-ordered. I appreciate it. Yes. So I think that the other side of the coin, of course, is helping young people understand just how many cool things there are to do out there that make money and that it is still quite literally a free market opportunity. Um, whether that is working for someone else or creating your own business or some combination thereof, uh, the sky is the limit. And there are a ton of things that no one's thought of yet. You don't have to go work for you know whatever whatever thing happens to be in front of you. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't go get a job and get the job done now and learn invaluable things when you are young. But you know, going to work for the highway department, for example, and doing that for 30 years and just hating it and trying to sit on your butt as much as possible and get paid by the taxpayers, that's a, that's a horrible vision for life that we often get stuck with. Yeah. We get told, well, if you go to college, yeah. that'll fix that problem. You go to college, then you can find a job that maybe, well, that, that's not necessarily true. Maybe it's true. Maybe you do need that. Maybe you don't. Maybe you can uh, find something or do something that someone needs and will pay you to do without going to college. It's really, it's not actually that complicated. It, it's, it's not easy, but it's fairly simple and straightforward. What opportunities are there and can mm -hmm. we observe them and take advantage of them? Well, you're exactly right. And so what we get into here is the distinction between what economists will refer to as the macro and the micro. And there's a fascinating um, interconnectivity because uh, at the macro, there are policy decisions that can really impact this. And, and I think Dennis referred to the COVID moment and the decision to use a lot of the, the treasury to give people money to not work. That was a macro impact. And, and there's all sorts of macro circumstances. The, the um, student debt fiasco, uh, the um, I think uh, heavy amount of bureaucracy that is now, you know, 33% of all healthcare spending is going to paperwork and red tape. Mm -hmm. so, so it's dramatically impacted the way medicine gets done in our country, the way that almost everything gets done. Um, but then on the micro, you have to do with how Bill and Tom and Dan and Jenny all respond to this stuff. On a micro level, what are the decisions we make? Well, I would put into the micro myself on the employer side of things, if I believe that this idea of a college degree being a necessary prerequisite to be a meaningful contributor to a market economy, if I believe it's all hogwash, then should I as an employer adopt a policy that we're only going to hire people with college degrees? I think it's atrocious. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, and not merely because it's unfair to certain candidates that are being deprived the opportunity just because they didn't want to go spend $250,000 for Oregon State to teach them about gender theory. Um, but I also think it is depriving me, mm -hmm. my company, of access to labor talent. Uh, well, you know, I have 63 employees. It's a very small company. But I think you're going to see more and more of the IBMs and, and, and Goldman Sachs's of the world changing 
uh, to your point, there are professions that just are going to require certain credentialing and certification, expertise, medical school, law school, that stuff's not going away. I'm still a big believer in someone getting a bachelor's degree in the right circumstances for the right motivations and with the right accompanying economics and behavior. So that there's a lot to be said there. My point is on a micro level, employers don't participate in this sham. Mm-hmm. Don't participate in this, this complete scam of the American worker that says a college degree is necessary to go produce within a company. And then the other micro piece I'll say, and I'll, and I'll wrap it up, is um, workers need to understand that they are not getting paid for any other reason that they play a role in the production of goods or services that meet the needs of humanity. Nobody will pay you to not do something valuable. And it may seem meaningless in the supply chain of a particular company's delivery, but it isn't. There's some role being played where there's value being created and it's worth a price of labor for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, once we understand our work in an economic context, we can appreciate the fact that we are serving our fellow man through our work. And that doing this in the context of a market economy is a blessing and it has glorious results in the end. And to your point earlier, you may very well be able to do something towards a greater end to to, uh, eventually start your own business Mm -hmm. or take the skills you develop and go pivot into a different field. Or maybe you're just saving up money while you want to go enter into a different arena altogether. There's all sorts of options that can only be understood at the micro level. There aren't macro principles right. for how I'd advise Bill and Dan and Jenny. They're all three different people. Mm-hmm. But at a micro level, I really believe this stuff is very important. There are guiding principles, and I, I agree with you 100%. It's so important to look at that and, and recognize that this is different for every individual. But the overarching reality that we all live in is there is a smorgasbord of opportunity and option. And this does not change when the economy takes a downturn, when things get difficult. It does not go away. It changes in the sense that, well, the opportunities are now different. But there are, there are so many opportunities that they are nearly equally infinite, right? There are so many opportunities in a good economy, and there are so many opportunities in a bad economy that it is difficult for one human being to tell the difference in the numbers of opportunities. Uh, this is still mm-hmm. the United States of America. We still have amazing opportunity, and people are still used to a certain standard of living. That means if you can come up with a way to provide some part of that, someone is going to pay you for it. That's, that is the way it's going to work. We're not going to forget that, oh, well, that part of technology, you know, we, that doesn't work anymore. There, there is a huge group in uh, the Christian homeschool world, which I spend some time in. I homeschool my kids. Uh, that says, well, you know, everything's just going to fall apart and we're just waiting for things to balkanize. There's the new favorite term, right? Um, and and that we have to live in that world. Well, maybe, maybe we have to live in that world. Maybe we don't. I remember when my grandfather, before I was born, he sat me down and told me, I'm not, but he told me about the time before I was born that, look, we all thought the world was going to end. We thought America was over when Barry Goldwater lost. We thought that was it. We all left yeah. politics. We got chocolate bars, you know, survival food and guns and headed for the woods. Um, (laughs) That's the reality. 
there's nothing new under the sun. Mm -hmm. And right now, what is the whole thing people are wringing their hands over saying all these jobs are going to go away, it's all meaningless, is artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. and, and before it was AI, it was other forms of technology, automation, digital computing. I think it's very important, because I, I think this is the point that Zach was making, that we realize from history that time and time and time and time again, we've thought this time it's different and it hasn't been different, that, that technological shifts can change what the work opportunities look like, but it always, if one particular job goes away, two other jobs get created. Mm -hmm. And it's important for us to stay dynamic, stay faithful, stay industrious, pursue those opportunities. And, and ultimately, uh, history has been very clear that uh, getting rid of the horse and buggy to allow for the automobile uh, created jobs. <laughs> That's jobs. right. Yeah. You know, the, the finish up, I have, I live in a neighborhood and there's an eight year old kid who went around to every house and he said for $2 a week, I'll take your trash cans out to the, to the street and then put them back in when they, when they get picked up. We have 40 houses. This kid's pulling in about four grand a year at eight years old. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's, that's America. That's what it. America was found on. Hey, there's the situation. Can I, do people need someone to walk their trash can out? No, but for $2 a week to a nice little eight-year-old boy, I'll pay him. And yeah. you see this, it's, it's coming up all over the place. You know, you have kids that'll come and, and pick up your dog poop. It's all these little jobs that kids are seeing it. And it's like, that's what America was built on, seeing an issue, seeing something that they can create a business for and then going with it. And, and I think that's what we have to build upon is like, our work is not done just when you reach a certain age plateau. It's just getting started. Like for me, it, my life just really, without playing a game, got started at 41 because it's so much in this world that you can do to help to make money. And I, it doesn't have to be something that you get paid for. I don't get paid to lobby. I just do it because I hate abortion and I want to end it. You know, it doesn't mean that you, you know, you can live off the fortunes that you made before in your, in your previous job to allow you to do things to actually work later on. So I just want to, well, and, and your, and your situation too is, is very unique because, uh, it's uh, unlike most careers, there is an, an inerrant, uh, shelf life to, mm -hmm. to how, how long one can compete at a high level in professional athletics. And, and sometimes I think like a computer programmer who at age 40 says, now I want to go focus on other extracurricular activities. I think they're making a mistake unless they aren't a very good computer programmer. Sure. But, but, but if they are a good computer programmer, I, I want their skill set to be applied in where that field is. So there's a, a chapter in the book about that as well. And so it, it to me is where the title of the book full time mm -hmm. came from. There's a book written by a man named Bob Buford. He passed away a couple of years ago and I didn't know him personally, but everything I've heard is that he was a good and decent man. But he wrote a book that sold almost a million copies. It's been used as sort of a Sunday school or adult, you know, uh, midweek uh, uh, study guide for years in a lot of evangelical churches called halftime moving from success to significance. Mm -hmm. And it plays off of this idea that you do a certain thing for a period of time, accumulate the money, that's the success phase of your life, and then it enables you to go into a significance phase. And I think there are people that their lives may play out that way to mm -hmm. some degree. I, I hope not. I don't, I, I don't really like the formula entirely because I believe the things people are doing in their career while they're accumulating money are themselves inherently important, mm -hmm. that they are significant. However, the idea that that ought to be a normative model, I think, is highly dualistic. 
and it probably is rooted in a Gnostic error, uh, that there is some sort of um, superior value in quote-unquote spiritual or ministry-minded activities versus these other physical endeavors of what we're doing in the material world. Mm -hmm. I believe that we have to understand that God created us as embodied people with careers, with vocations, with callings, with endeavors that matter to him. And that our lives do not have to move from success to significance, that our success that's is right. significant. And, and so that's where the title full-time really came from. Well, David, we, we appreciate your time today and um, just go out and get this book full-time. Uh, thanks for coming on and we're looking forward to talking to you in the future. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, David. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next week.